0: Brothers and sisters, uh, what comes to mind when you think about the nation of Israel? Uh, Perhaps you think about the 12 tribes, uh, God's chosen people, uh, God's covenant uh, with Abraham, uh, the Exodus event, or even perhaps modern-day Palestine or uh, Jerusalem. But what comes to mind, or better yet, how do you feel when you think about unbelievers of the nation of Israel? Those who have not confessed Jesus as their Messiah have not confessed that Jesus is the son of the living God. Does that bring sorrow, grief, Sadness to your heart, or is it indifference, apathy, resentment, or perhaps no thought at all? But then what comes to mind even when you think about your unbelieving loved ones? your family members and friends and those who are related to you and closely connected to you. They've heard the gospel, they've attended worship services, perhaps they were members of a church, perhaps even were members of this church, and they continue in unbelief. They are old enough to consciously turn from their sins and to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, they're also old enough to consciously reject him. And some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, that same indifference or apathy, resentment or absence of feeling or thought that we possess for unsaved Israel, we perhaps possess for our unsaved loved ones. In this passage before us, we're going to see uh, Paul's heart for unsaved Israel, and we're going to be challenged to examine our own hearts, and not only with respect to unsaved Israel, but also in respect to our unsaved loved ones. First, a little context to the book of Romans. A prominent theme in the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. We read of mankind's, both Jew and Gentile's, universal unrighteousness and God's judgment against universal sin. We, we learn that God's righteousness is available and attainable as a gift of God's grace to both Jew and Gentile, but it's solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, not of works. And for those who have believed in Jesus Christ and been credited with his righteousness, that must now shape how they live, both in their belief and in their behavior, both in their character and in their conduct. It influences how we relate to God and to the body of Christ and to government and even to our enemies. And all of this begins with the fact as it says in Romans chapter 12, that we have to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, and we have to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds. From chapters 1 to 8, Paul is unpacking these rich theological truths such as the doctrines of sin and salvation, and specifically with salvation, he talks about adoption and election and justification and more. He talks about sanctification, he talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about glorification, all of these rich, rich theological truths. When we get to chapters 9 uh, through 11, he shifts his focus now to the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. And by chapter 11, he answers the question, since God has fulfilled his salvation plan for Gentiles in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what about the salvation promises to the nation of Israel? The question is summed up in chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people meaning Israel, has he? Does the gospel to the nation, the salvation of the Gentiles, does that nullify God's promises to Israel? And Paul assures them uh, God has not forsaken Israel. In fact, God has a remnant. He always has a remnant. But the remnant consists of spiritual Israel, not physical Israel in fact Paul is evidence of that he says he is a member that constitutes spiritual Israel. So when we read brothers and sisters chapters chapter 9 verses one through five it's in the context of that question what about Israel? especially considering their widespread Unbelief in their Messiah. When you go back to chapter 8 just for a moment, it's filled with, especially in the latter part of that chapter, joyful boasting in the believer's triumph. It's familiar to us, right? Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Is God, if God is for us, who is against us? Right? He who did not spare his son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to speak of the inseparable love of Jesus Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 It ends with such a joyful, celebratory boasting in a believer's triumph in Jesus Christ. And then there seems to be mood swing. We get to chapter 9. And when we get to chapter 9, this passage, these opening five verses, they capture Paul's deep hurt for unsaved Israel. And it illustrates really what should be our hurt for unsaved loved ones. So, brothers and sisters, first, let us see the truth of Paul's sorrow over unsaved Israel. The truth of Paul's sorrow over unsaved Israel. Now, what he's going to do, brothers and sisters, he's going to give us a triple oath, if you will, a triple oath, a threefold testimony that is going to emphasize the sincerity, the earnestness of his pain, and of his distress for unbelieving Israel. And he's going to appeal to Christ, his conscience, and the Holy Spirit. It's a threefold corroboration of witnesses, if you will, to the truth and sincerity about what he's about to say. Look at the first phrase in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am telling the truth in Christ. So he first states it in a positive manner, right? He emphasizes what I'm saying to you is true. What I'm telling you is fact. Paul is sincere, right? Because he states it in Christ, right? He speaks as one who is in union with Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm telling you the truth as one who is in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And therefore, it is truth, because John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the truth. The truth. It's not that he hasn't told the truth up to this point, but he's he's solemnly stressing the sincerity of what he's about to convey. And next he declares, I am not lying. I am not lying. So now he stresses it in a, in a negative way. I'm not lying. I'm not over-exaggerating. I'm not overstating the facts, because if he were to lie, that would identify himself with Satan, who was the father of lies. says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is a common speaking, truth speaking formula for Paul. In 1 Timothy 2.7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. And then thirdly, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So now he appeals to conscience, right? He says, my conscience witnesses with me, right? My conscience is my co-witness. It corroborates the truth about what I'm about to say. My conscience confirms the veracity of what I'm about to communicate, right? The, the conscience is that that awareness, that that knowledge that convicts us of the of that which is morally good or morally evil. It convicts us and informs us about what to believe and what to obey and what to follow versus what to resist, what to reject, and what to flee from. And one thing you don't want to have is a sealed conscience. But our conscience has to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and it has to be informed by the word of God. He says it's in the Holy Spirit. My witness corroborates the truth about what I'm about to say because it's controlled, influenced, and governed by the third person of the Trinity. Now, this should make us perk up, but it shouldn't shock us, right? Because as Christians, we should all be known as truth tellers, truth tellers. The church of Jesus Christ in a world that is saturated with lies is known for the truth, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what the Bible says. We tell the truth, Ephesians 4.15. We do it in love, but nonetheless, we tell the truth. And we tell God's authoritative truth. In Colossians 3.9, For prohibits us from lying. We don't push lies within the corporate assembly, or in the world. In fact, we declare the greatest truth, the greatest truth, the gospel of truth of Jesus Christ. We speak the truth. We don't lie, and we especially don't do, say anything, or anything that is contradictory to our spirit-informed conscience. So the question is, are you a truth teller? Are you a truth teller? Paul certainly was. Could you and I take an oath today and say as one who is united to Jesus Christ, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness of this in the Holy Spirit. Both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit bear witness. I say these things in the presence of God. Well, Such was the case with Paul. That was the truth of Paul's sorrow over unsaved Israel. But let's see the magnitude, the magnitude of Paul's sorrow for unsaved Israel. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, right but i have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart so he he just discloses his heart he unveils his hurt right and he and he doubles down with the language to really communicate the depth of his hurt and his sorrow for unsaved israel he says i have great sorrow i have profound pain I have tremendous affliction. Why, Paul? Because of Israel's unbelief, because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, their Messiah, and because of that, they are cut off from God's salvation. Cut off. There's absolutely no possibility of attaining the righteousness of Christ or eternal salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And when he says great, he's speaking of the intensity of the sorrow. And when he says sorrow, he's talking about the emotional pain that he bears. All right, this is the same language as used in John chapter 16, verses 6 and 22, when the disciples felt sorrow when Jesus told them of his approaching departure. But. Paul's sorrow and pain is deep and penetrating. Look at the rest of verse 2, and he says, I have unceasing grief in my heart. So he not only possesses great sorrow, profound pain, but he has continuous, unceasing anguish. Anguish. I have incessant distress, constant and consuming grief. And this, this grief and this distress and this anguish is in his heart. All right? His heart is the dwelling place of his emotions and his passions and his affections and his desires. And, and the grief, the pain, is consuming a place in his heart. He reminds me of Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus Christ wept for lost Israel? He wept for lost Israel. He wept for lost Israel because of their coming fate at the future calamity, the destruction of the temple. This is what he says. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make you for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon, when, upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. When you weep, brothers and sisters, listen, when you weep for unsaved lost people, you reflect the heart of Christ. You reflect the heart of Christ. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if there were some days, if not many, that Paul wept for unsaved Israel. Right when he he witnessed the hostile and sometimes violent opposition to the gospel and to his own life, which was really hostile opposition to Jesus Christ, and their failed efforts to attain righteousness by works of the law, that struck his soul. What about us? What about me? Right? do you possess pain for unsaved Israel? Do we even grieve over their lack of salvation? We don't even discuss Israel in the church, right? Unless it headlines across the news. I'm talking about the spiritual state of Israel, right? We... We may think about it when there's a territorial invasion or some war, but what about the spiritual condition of the nation itself? Let me bring it home. Have you wept over the unbelief and spiritual lostness of the people you know? Do you have pain and anguish in your heart for their unbelief and for the fact that they are walking the tightrope of hell? I'm not talking about their educational accomplishments. I'm not talking about their career achievements. I'm not talking about their sports attainments. I'm talking about their souls. I'm talking about matters of eternity. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We ought to be grieving. You know what I'm grieving about? I'm grieving the fact that we're not grieving. We ought to grieve. We ought to grieve for people who are chasing the pleasures and the luxuries and the amenities of this world. They're trying to live their best life now. Those are the people we ought to grieve for. We ought to grieve, right, the fact that people have bought the devil's lie that they can be good enough or righteous enough to get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. We ought to grieve for those folks. You know what Jesus said? Jesus told a parable and ended it this way. God is going to say, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. We ought to grieve over those people. We ought to grieve for the people who believe, even on this day, that they're saved, yet their works deny them. Those who say, I have fellowship with God, I'm a Christian, yet they walk in darkness. We have to grieve for those people. We ought to grieve for people who have misery upon misery upon misery, some who have no hope, but they won't hope in Christ in whose kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We have to grieve for those people. And don't tell me Oh, because God is sovereign in salvation, therefore I shouldn't grieve or I shouldn't weep for unbelievers. I know that God is sovereign. Paul knew that God is sovereign. In fact, he writes about God's sovereign choice of election in the next few verses. That didn't temper his sorrow for lost Israel. And it shouldn't temper mine and it shouldn't temper yours. I don't know if we grieve enough over lost people. I'm not talking about pitying lost people. I'm talking about sorrowing for lost people, weeping for lost people. I, I, I had a, you know, I didn't plan to say this. I, I, I met with some dear brothers met with some dear brothers, we were just having lunch together, didn't even plan to do this, and we ended up talking about lost family members, and I just wept in their presence. I just wept. In verse three, he says something mind-blowing, I mean, unimaginable, unthinkable, He begins with four, right? What he's about to explain is the length and the the depth of his grief. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Accursed, separated from Christ. Paul says literally, For I was on the point of praying. I would wish, I would pray. If I could, I would have. That I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. I would endure the sentence of hell for their sake. I would suffer judgment in their place. I would be delivered over to experience God's wrath on their behalf. I would exchange places that they might be saved and I might be devoted to destruction. That's what it means to be accursed. So that I would be damned for them if it would save them, right? Paul is willing to call down condemnation on himself. That is how much he loved the nation of Israel. I'll exchange places with them if it will save their souls for eternity. It's the curse of being severed from Christ. Christ. He's willing to do that. I'm willing to be excluded, removed from my union with Christ. The very thing he just got through talking about in the prior verse. All right. Moses said something similar. Exodus chapter 32, verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, "Alas, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. All right, This is the episode of the, the golden calf. and But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Paul is perhaps borrowing from this language, what you see here is not somebody who is a lunatic and out of his mind. You're, you see somebody who has a love and a passion and a burden for his kinsmen. And he says, if it was possible, I would be permanently, eternally excluded from Christ's kingdom and condemned to judgment on, you, on your behalf. For you. Paul knows it's not, impossible, it's not possible. He just said in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ himself said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He said in John chapter 10... I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No person, no circumstance, not even Satan himself can pluck us out of the Father or the Son's hand. Paul knows that. But that doesn't prevent him saying, if it were possible, I would pray this. Why? He says, for the sake of my brethren, fellow members of the God's elect community. It's a a bond of love and affection. He is tying himself, connecting himself to lost Israel. My kinsmen according to the flesh, right? That physical lineage, ancestral lineage, if it was possible, if it was attainable, I would pray to perish in the lake of fire if it meant I could save their souls. So I ask you, do you possess that type of sorrow, that type of grief, that type of anguish, I'm not there yet. I'm not there to the point to say I would exchange my soul for lost people. And maybe that's the problem. That's the problem. Yes, I mourn. I mourn over lost people, and you should too. I'm not talking about mourning at a funeral. Mourning over the physically dead. I'm talking about mourning over the spiritually dead, the dead men walking. All right, consider your, your lost son or daughter, your lost sibling, brother or sister, your lost parents, your lost grandparents, your lost cousins, nieces, nieces and nephews, those who are conscious enough to reject Christ or to embrace Him in faith. Where's your mourning? So he Paul he puts an exclamation point on the sincerity the sureness of what he says but he's not done he's not done we've seen the truth about Paul's sorrow over lost Israel and the magnitude of that sorrow the lost Israel. Let's look at the unmerited privileges to unsaved Israel. The unmerited privileges to unsaved Israel. Beginning at verse 4, he says, Who are Israelites? Right? The name Israelite, Israel, God gave that name to Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, following the account where Jacob was wrestling with the angel, the angel of God who was God Himself, and then applies that name to the nation itself, Israel. Then he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? So what Paul is doing is now he is going down a list of about eight blessings and privileges afforded to Israel. The history of the nation of Israel in relationship to God is a catalog of blessings and privileges. And he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, right? Speaking of the father-son relationship between God and the people of Israel, one of provision and protection and care and discipline, right? Not only in the wilderness, but these are privileges and blessings that they still, in, in some sense, enjoy. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. willing to exterminate the enemies of Israel because Israel is his son. But not only to whom belongs his adoption as sons and the glory. He's talking about the manifestation of God's glory, right? His presence, his power amongst the people of Israel. It was at Mount Sinai and in the cloud where God was accompanying Israel in the wilderness, where God, the glory of God filled the temple as well as the tabernacle, God, the glory of God above the mercy seat and the holy of holies in the temple and in the tabernacle. They they had the glory of God before them. The manifestation, the visible reality of God's presence and his power with the people. Then he says, he also had the covenants, right? The covenants, right? Those those binding promises and agreements between God and the nation of, of Israel, right? And beginning with the Abrahamic covenant and then reiterated to his sons, Isaac and Jacob. And then we have the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is a promise that from the line of David, there will be a king who in his dominion will have no end, right? Consummated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the new covenant, the new covenant, which we are presently under Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, They had the covenants revealed to them. And then they had the giving of the law, right? That was the pronouncement of the law, Exodus 20. And then they had the temple service, right? That's the the instructions for temple worship that the priests were to um, direct uh, or model for the people and the sacrificial system, and all of that is prefiguring and foreshadowing the person of Jesus Christ. It's looking ahead to the promised Messiah. And Then they have the promises. The promises, those are the messianic promises, the promises of the coming and the salvation and suffering and judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the messianic promises. And then it says, whose are the fathers? Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're, they're ancestral fathers, but also David is called a father in Acts chapter 229, and the New Testament speaks in other places of other fathers. So it's blessing upon blessing, privilege upon privilege, given to a people, um, Deuteronomy 4:32 just says this. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? No. This is a great passage. Uh, you can look at Psalm 105 with me. Psalm 105. Psalm one oh five, beginning at verse eight. Psalm one oh five, at verse eight, it says. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets No harm. That's a summary of God's blessing and provision and protection and preservation of the people of Israel. But now, Paul ascends the mountain and he goes to the climax of blessing, the climax of privileges. The pinnacle of privileges, if you will. And he says, and from whom? That is to say, a descendant of the people of Israel, specifically the line of Judah, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Messiah King. According to the flesh. Now it's speaking of his incarnation. And right, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, the eternal word became flesh. He is the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And who is over all. Now he's talking about his sovereign lordship over every sphere of creation. God blessed forever. Now is deity. This is God we're talking about. Jesus the Christ. God in the flesh. And he's blessed forever. Praised, deserving of praise and worship and exaltation, right? Unto the ages. Age to age to age. Jesus Christ is to be exalted, is to be praised, is to be blessed forever, and the church said, amen. All right? All of those provisions leading up to the pinnacle of provision and blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, The climax of blessing. The blessings climax in the Christ. But you know what? That compounds the grief. That compounds the sorrow. Because all of those privileges, right, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, a descendant of the nation of Israel is the one whom they reject. No wonder, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. No wonder, Paul says, I would exchange my life and, my, and all of eternity to save them. Well, we talked about the unmerited privileges to Israel, brothers and sisters, but what about the unmerited privileges to those who persist in unbelief today, right? Right? You know them, right? I, 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 just, I, I just ran down the list. Family members, close friends, they have the unmerited privileges too. They've been raised in a church, were a part of ministry, participated in the life and blessings of the church, sat under the preaching and teaching of the word of God, some of whom you helped and bring the Christ and disciple. So you thought. Only for them to turn away from the faith and to persist in unbelief. Unmerited privileges and blessings only for them to reject the Savior. These are the unmerited Merited privileges to unsaved Israel, of which Paul had unceasing distress and pain for. But brothers and sisters, Paul didn't. He didn't stop uh, with sorrow and pain. You know what he did? He prayed. He prayed. Look at chapter 10. Look what he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them speaking of Israel is for what? Their salvation. Paul didn't stop and just have a pity party. He didn't wallow in grief. He prayed. He cried out to God for their salvation. Let me ask you something. If you were to pray this prayer, who would you substitute in the the space? My heart's desire and my prayer to God for for their salvation. Who might you fill in the blank for? Don't just sorrow. Don't just grieve. Pray. Pray pray for their salvation. But you know what? You can't just pray either. You've got to proclaim. You've got to proclaim. Stay in the chapter. Go down to verse 14. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. When you take the gospel to these lost people of ours, you have beautiful feet. Look at that. Verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. Brothers and sisters, they're not going to all believe. You can take the gospel to them. Some of them are going to still persist in unbelief. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word or the message of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. You take the gospel to your lost loved ones. They aren't going to always receive it. But I can guarantee you what? If you don't take the gospel to them, they'll never receive it. I'm talking about their souls in jeopardy. We care about that? You ever ever wept at a funeral? Not because you missed the person, because you know where they are. See, those are true tears. Those are tears. And I pray for some people that the reality is not what Hebrews 6 says about them that they have tasted of the Holy Spirit, and now it's impossible to bring them to repentance. We better pray that that that's not the truth. So when you think about unsaved Israel, what comes to mind? How do you feel when you think about unsaved, immediate, and extended family members and close friends, parents, and children, and cousins, aunts, and uncles, and others? How do you feel? Hopefully you have deep sorrow, unceasing grief for them as they persist in unbelief. But hopefully you don't stay that, stay just there. Hopefully you pray for them. You pray for them. But you can't just stay with prayer. You've got to proclaim. And may God help us to not only feel for lost people who we are in the company of every day, some here right now. We pray for their souls, but we also proclaim the message of Christ to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. I just pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts and to our feet in Jesus' name. Amen.